0: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen.
1: Can I please have your attention? Daniel it! Greetings to listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, go to thedispatch.com to get all sorts of things about all sorts of stuff and also about the other things. And um, we are doing this outside of the normal space-time continuum, sort of as if uh, Dr. Strange had used the crimson bands of Sidorak to bring us outside of the space-time continuum in our Iraqian null entropy tube or something. So um, uh, I don't even know if this episode is going to have ads in it, uh, but we wanted to get this in before the first debate and uh, because my friend uh, and repeat dispatch, uh, repeat remnant guest, Tevi Troy um, is a good guy to talk to about debate prep and the history of uh, debates. He is a historian who's studied the presidency, among many other things, and he's actually participated participated in the debate prep process for presidential campaigns. And he is literally not figuratively uh, my oldest friend in Washington because I replaced him at the American Enterprise Institute almost three decades ago. So, Tevi, welcome back to the uh, Remnant. Great to have you here.
2: Thanks for having me. Uh, the really important thing here is that I have now matched Vin Canado because I think Kannado equivalence is very important. I don't really want to reach the level of, let's say, the suit your kind of new cool friends like SAS, but as long as I maintain Canado equivalence, I'm happy.
1: I, I think that's probably right. And for those who don't know, uh, Vin Canato was uh, part of our original troika, or I don't know it was uh, 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 running crew, running crew, you know, whatever. Um back in the day, and he's been on a couple times as well. I should also say that you've written a bunch of books. Um your most recent wasn't Shall We Wake the President, it was which were the one we had you want for? Fight House. That's right. Fight House. First rule of Fight House is forget the title of Fight House. I apologize. Okay, so um Tev, why don't we start at the at the top and just do big picture um sort of table setting. What do people need to know about presidential debates? Big picture, um, how long have they been around? um, How how long have they been a fixture of American politics or haven't they?
2: It's a really good point because the debates are a relatively new phenomenon. The first debate takes place in 1960. That's the famous Kennedy-Nixon debates. And then they go on hiatus for 16 years. 16 years, there's no debates until 1976. When Ford and Carter, and in a close election, both of them had, I guess, incentive to debate. So they started the debates again in 1976, and we've had them in every cycle since 76. But the format was something that was often negotiated and up in the air. Now we have the Commission on Presidential Debates, and we have this kind of standard format where there are three presidential and one vice presidential, and it's, it's kind of set in stone. So you don't have these negotiations. You don't have one side calling the other side a chicken for not wanting to debate. You just have debates are expected and part of the landscape,
1: but it is a relatively new part of the landscape. That's the important point. So, uh, I, I guess I, kn- I knew it. I mean, I, I knew because it's, it's part of the, um, the entry quiz to be a pundit about the 1960 debates being the first ones, but I guess I never really focused on the fact that you didn't have them again until 76, why not have them in 64 or 68 or 72? What was the stumbling block in those things? So I was thinking about this. In
2: 64, Lyndon Johnson has this huge lead and he ended up winning a a huge mandate, as as you know. And so he had a little incentive to engage in a debate. It was all downside for him and Goldwater would have wanted to do it, but I I didn't see the benefit. 68, very weird year. Things are very uh, on knife's edge, kind of like this year in a way and they, they just didn't make it happen. It was uh, Nixon, Humphrey, uh, but there were also some side candidates. In 72, again, Nixon's running for re-election, huge lead over McGovern, and again, not real incentive on the Nixon side. So I think in 76 was the first time when the stars aligned and you had both sides seeing advantage to them to debate.
1: Yeah, it, it kind of reminds me of when in, I think it was 10th grade, uh, Jamie Lindenbaum challenged me to an arm wrestling competition and it was uh it was the first time the concept of uh, nothing nothing for me to win everything for me to lose entered into my consciousness right so i mean if, if lbj goes into a debate what is he going to do add five more points to his margin you know against goldwater or does he have a chance of losing you know 30 points i mean there's no no advantage there so but the presidential debate commission stuff starts when did you say 80 uh- 84 so uh, it seems to me that the last uh,
2: debate I remember a fight about formatting was 92. Uh-huh. And that was the one where George H.W. Bush is kind of, uh, I guess, tricked or uh, his, his team agrees to the town hall format. And right. the town hall format, if you recall, was a disaster for Bush. He looked uncomfortable the whole time. He couldn't answer the question from that one woman who asked how the deficit personally affects him. I don't know if I can answer that question. because I still don't know what it means 28 years later. But yeah. then he famously looks at his watch kind of showing to the American people, I've got better places to be. And me at the same time, the town hall format was just
1: perfect for Clinton because he emoted and he felt everybody's pain. And it was just a great format for him. Yeah, and everyone was lucky. That's all he felt, I guess, because guess the cameras <laughs> were on. But I've always had a deep abiding sympathy for H.W. Bush on the looking at his watch thing. I mean, I if I were stuck in one of those things, I mean, like, first of all, even if you were like super into it and super emotive and super caring, you could still look at your watch and be like, "Gosh, I only had I only have thirty more minutes of this wonderful thing. Let me make the most of it." I mean, this idea that somehow he wasn't the potter familius of the nation because he looked at his watch, I always thought was on par with the the bogus supermarket scanner story that The New York Times put out there about Papa Bush. But um, anyway, we're getting far. So, but look, you're right about that. These moments become indelible when they fit a certain narrative.
2: I mean, the Lloyd Benson crack about Dan Quayle, which we could talk about. That was, I guess, uh, you know, a, a tough putdown. But it was an extra tough putdown because everybody had this belief that Quayle wasn't up to the job. So I think when the moments fit in with the narrative, I think it really makes them more intense and more resonant.
1: Yeah, I mean, like Al Gore's sighing, right? And there was that whole thing. And then there was the one, and I will still, I will stand my ground and fight anybody on this, uh, with rocks and sticks, if I must, the, uh, the idea that Mitt Romney said anything wrong with the binders full of women thing. I, I, I have yet to meet anybody who can make a substantive case that there was anything wrong with what he had said there. Um, but for some reason it fit the narrative of, which was true that, Romney spoke like he learned, you know, conservatism a second language and was kind of he had the Al Gore problem, the animatronic kind of problem, and binders full of women was a weird thing to say. But uh Yeah, and remember at CPAC what he says he's severely
2: conservative. Right. No conservative who is actually conservative would use the modifier severely. Right,
1: right. Although, you know, we can also talk about compassionate conservatism, but I don't want to start a fight. So anyway. <laughs> um, uh, uh, let's get back to the debate stuff. Um, 76 was, um, the first it's, it's one Ford, after Carter, right? was first one after Nixon, and it was just Ford and Carter. Yeah. And there's an
2: interesting backstory on, on this one because Carter is kind of, uh, arrogant about it. He doesn't want to do mock practice debates. He says, I am not going to go off and practice against the dummy opponent or memorize any cute speeches or anything like that. Ford actually has a full on debate prep where they play the roles, and Ford's debate prep actually talks about the moment that was the most memorable moment of the Ford-Carter debate, which is where Ford bizarrely claimed that there was no Soviet do- domination of, of Poland. Right, Warsaw's and, now
1: free or something like that, right? Right,
2: Wasn't that- and, and given a chance to clean it up, he still didn't fix the problem. He, he kept asserting that there was no Soviet domination of Eastern Europe and this actually goes back to the debate prep there was a guy named William Highland who was then on the National Security Council at aide, and he pressed this point in the debate prep that this is what we're supposed to say so ford was just saying what his preppers told him to say which you know makes it extra bizarre
1: oh okay, i didn't realize that what, what but
2: why the point that ford was trying to make and was unable to convey and i still think is the wrong point to make but it's that the the oppressed people of Eastern Europe don't feel oppressed because in their hearts they yearn to be free. Now, the wow. easiest thing in the world is just to say, yes, <laughs> the people are oppressed by the Soviet Union and leave it at that. But he couldn't quite get there. I don't know if it had something to do with uh, Kissinger and hopes for detente, but th- that was a point that he was directed to say. Now, on the Carter side, you know, he made this comment that I quoted earlier that uh, he's not going to stand up and do mock debates or anything like that. But Robert Redford, the actor, actually did come by and sit down with Carter and show him films of the 1960 debates and talk to him about how you should appear in a visual medium. And later Carter credited Redford and said that Redford helped make him president.
1: Hmm. I'm still kind of reeling from the, in their hearts they're free to Poland is free. Uh, I just, I, the dots are very far apart in my mind between those two things, but anyway. Um, and that was also the year of the. I know we're supposed to talk about presidential debates, but that was also the Bob Dole, um, Democratic Democrat wars. wars, yeah, Democrat Wars thing, which uh, is. First of all, people forget that Bob Dole ran for vice president in 1976, right? Um, right, because because he was never vice
2: president, and he was running with an incumbent,
1: because right. Rockefeller
2: was the vice president under Ford, and then. Rockefeller kind of gets booted in the Halloween massacre when Ford says he's not going to include him on the ticket. They bring in Dole, who at the time was seen as kind of a more conservative force, not necessarily how we see him today. And then he does get in this vice presidential debate where he makes that crack about Democrat wars and is seen as sort of a dismissive crack because we don't necessarily believe that World War II was a Democrat war. It
1: was an American war. Yeah, Talk to Pat Buchanan about that. Um, (laughs) Okay, so um, and then How much evidence is there one way or the other that the 76 debate actually was decisive one way or the other in the election? I know Ford was, thanks to James Baker, at least according to James Baker, um, was closing the gap with Carter. Um, But do we, how much, how much, how pivotal was the debate in that race um, for the actual election results?
2: Yeah, so this is the Baker narrative, and as we know, Baker is very good at talking to the press and putting his narrative out there. has been doing that for 50 years now. Uh, But the narrative was, and I'm not saying it's wrong, it was that Ford was closing the gap. He was gaining on Carter. He was gaining every every, every day, and then you have this debate kerfuffle about the Soviet domination of Eastern Europe, and suddenly Ford's momentum stops for about a week. Mm -hmm. And then it picks up again, and he's gaining, gaining, gaining. As you know, it was a real... Squeaker of an election and Ford barely lost, but he did indeed lose. And so the Baker team seemed to say that if we hadn't had that problem that week where we kind of froze,
1: or if we'd had more time, maybe we would have won the election. Kind of unknowable. It is kind of amazing that that race was so close given the givens about Watergate and Nixon and all that. And you look at 76 to 80 as the one interruption and basically a, what a 20 plus year monopoly on the white house and it took an unelected you know for vice president who replaced a a corrupt vice president who then replaced a corrupt president and yet it was still a squeaker and then four years later the republicans come back in for another 12 years controlling the white house um i guess it shows you that it was really nice to have california in the in the uh, Republican column in the Electoral College. Um, it wasn't just
2: California. There, there was the so-called sort of Electoral L, meaning the Republicans had the whole West Coast of the country, which they don't have anymore, and then the right. whole South, and that together kind of put the Democrats on their back heels for a while.
1: So that. So I mean, I, I know we're doing the debate stuff, and we're going to get back to it. But um, I've been on a minor tear about this Electoral College stuff, and um and we don't have to get into our Walter Bernsian, you know, uh, grand, uh, schema about why the electoral college makes sense and why federalism is good. I've done enough of that lately, but the, the claim that you get from so many people who hate the electoral college is that it is this long standing trend that has defied, um, the democratic will for so long and, and, and that it has been a impediment to uh, democratic expression and, and democratic small D democratic governance for so long, Barack Obama won the electoral college twice. Right. I mean, um, and if you look at the long sweep of the last 30 years about the migration of what states are Republican versus what states are democratic, the thing that's shocking isn't the stability of the electoral college coalition, but the transience of it. Right? I mean, the upper Midwest was once the staple of the Democratic, you know, coalition, and now that's moving red. And the West Coast was once the staple of the Republican coalition, and that's moved. That's long since moved blue. Um, I just don't get where these people are coming from when they say that that um, this has been this long-standing trend in american politics that shows this this lock of polarization for so long when the states in each column seem to keep moving i mean what am i missing i don't think you're missing anything these people are missing a a sense
2: of history and b a a sense that these things do transition over time and so just in 1992 as the democrats were freaking out and saying that they would never win another election after they'd lost three straight and as he correctly said five out of six to the Republicans because the Republicans' electoral advantages, Bill Clinton picks that lock, takes back the West Coast, and suddenly, it's the Republicans who have trouble winning the Electoral College for a while, and and, and certainly, they're also having trouble on on the popular front. So, this thing changes over time. You have to do the hard work of winning the states in order to get there, and the Democrats keep saying they're gonna try and win Texas. Sometimes, Republicans say they're gonna try and get back California. Um, This stuff changes. There's a lot of transition. I think I'm going to be really interested, you know, putting back on our old uh, demographer hats because we, you know, we both used to work for Ben Wattenberg. What's going to happen post COVID? You're seeing a lot of people move out of some of the big cities, especially you're seeing uh, rents go down and uh, and real estate go down in New York City. A lot of people moving to Florida. Does that mean Florida gets more electoral votes and is a, a better red state for Republicans? Or does the migration of liberal New Yorkers to Florida make Florida more in the blue column? We don't know and we can't know yet, but. The one thing that we know is that the stuff doesn't stay stable. It's, it, cha- it changes and transitions
1: over time. And that has been a constant throughout American history. Yeah. I mean, pre COVID, because I do think that it, you're right, it changes the calculation in weird ways. I should say pre COVID, also pre urban riots, right? Which may be a bigger driver of some migration, you know, I mean, than then COVID. And then in other places, it's probably more driven by COVID. I just don't know how to disentangle that stuff. But uh, pre all of, in the before times, let's just say, uh, uh, Chris Starwalt made the point on here, which I think is pretty helpful as just as a matter of shorthand, states that are trending red are the states that are having a brain drain of young people, have net out migration of young people. States that, you know, so that any state where the average age is getting older, also kind of means it's getting wider, And, um, and they're going to trend Red, they're going to tread Republican in any state where they're where young people are moving in because young people, by by just a matter of math, that cohort is more diverse, which also means they're getting less white. Uh, they're trending blue, and it'll be interesting to see whether the COVID stuff disrupts that formulation in some way. I, 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 it's something that worth watching. All right, so yeah, um, on that point, let me let me
2: just make a, an interesting point, which is this is sort of related to COVID, but not necessarily related to COVID because we've seen from COVID that everybody can work from home. And you know, look, the last time you and I met was before COVID. Uh, we, we did a remnant and we did it face to face. And now we're doing it remotely. So many things can be done remotely. Are you going to see people moving to your new friend Ben Sass's place of Nebraska and saying, I could live more cheaply here and still do the same work as I did when I was living in New York. And so that might also have a transition and shift where people are moving based on, a, and again, the reason people are moving out of the cities is not just urban riots and not just COVID, but also high taxes and high regulation. So there's a whole bunch of things going on that go into people's decision to move. And I think technology may be a driver
1: that could lead people, young people moving back into certain red states. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm a little more skeptical about some of that just because I think, and again, this is always one of the great, um, uh, dangers in punditry of extrapolating too much from your own personal experience. But given how much I despise Zoom, Google Chat, Skype, Zencaster, all of these things now, and I hate all of these virtual meetings and stuff, I kind of feel like a lot of other people do too. Um, And it certainly seems that way. And a lot of kids really hate. I think it's weird. I'll be fascinated to know whether or not this is good or bad for the whole virtual distance learning business because on the one hand they're wildly growing the size of the pie of the number of people who do distance learning more than any distance learning enterprise ever could have dreamed on the other hand the culture is responding to it by saying this sucks and i hate it (laughs) and and so i do wonder if there's going to be a backlash against it i i you know the, what happens to commercial real estate is sort of a fascinating question. I think a lot of people crave human interaction. So you could have a bump, but anyway, I don't know. It's a digression. Um, and maybe I'll get a commercial real estate guy or someone in here to talk about this stuff. Um, okay. 1980 debates, right? Back to the debates. Um, people forget that, that Carter didn't only did one, right? Was it one or none? No one.
2: Yeah. Carter debated Reagan. And this is the famous debate where Reagan says, there you go again. And this is actually a line that came from the debate prep. You know, I I said Carter didn't want to do the mock debates. In 1988, he actually relented and did do the mock debates. And there was a guy named Samuel Popkin, who is a uh, political science professor from California, who kind of channeled Reagan for Carter. Uh, But Reagan also did these mock debates. He set up a garage to look like a TV studio, and he was looking for something to kind of deflate Carter when Carter made the kind of nasty attacks on Reagan. And, and and Carter was pretty rough on Reagan in 1980. And he kept hammering this point that he claimed that Reagan was against Medicare. And Reagan came up in those debate preps with this idea of there you go again. And mm-hmm. the there you go again kind of deflated Carter's relentless attacks on Reagan, specifically the one uh, on Medicare. And so that was a, a good moment for Reagan.
1: Um, so wait, was the that- the John Anderson one was that that was nineteen eighty, right? Yeah, John Anderson was nineteen eighty. Yeah, yeah, so Reagan actually just debated John Anderson in one of those things too, right? I mean, wasn't there there was something yeah. like that? Yeah, yeah. I always right one always, against Carter and one with one with Anderson. And was the thinking there? I mean, like, was the thinking there that Anderson was going to take more votes from Carter than from Reagan? Uh, that, I mean, that was the Reagan team thinking, but but if, again, this gets back to the point I was making earlier
2: about the Commission on Presidential date, Debates. It's all up for grabs when you don't have a set format, so people are kind of uh, browbeating the other team or you know playing uh, playing weird games of chicken or whatever. And, you know, maybe I'll debate, maybe I won't de- debate. Now we have it more set, so we kind of have more certainty to it, and you can't game the system as much.
1: Well. Yeah, um, and. We don't think, though, that the, I mean, given that Carter was history's greatest monster, um, we don't think that the, that debate was necessarily super decisive, right? Um, it was, um, or do we? I mean, is it, what, what is the conventional wisdom about how important that the 80 debate was?
2: I, I think it helped. I don't think it was dispositive. De- so I, I think it was helpful to Reagan in kind of diffusing Carter in that moment in, in Carter's attacks and showing that Reagan was kind of a, a, a genial guy. But uh, I, I think uh, Reagan won pretty decisively in that campaign, and I, I think he probably wins when, with or without the debate.
1: Um, okay, and then there's 1984, um, which probably has won, a, a, at least up until recently, I would say was probably one of the most famous comebacks. Um, um, actually, when you think about it, Reagan has... At least three major famous comebacks that, you know, I paid for this microphone, which was a primary debate. Which is primary debate, yeah. And then the, there you go again. again. And then I'm not going to make an issue of my opponent's youth and inexperience, right? right? Which was 1984 with Mondale. Right. But Um, the
2: important thing on this one, the interesting thing on this one is that that was not in the first debate. Remember, the first debates usually get the the highest ratings, but Reagan did terribly in the first debate and this is a recurring phenomenon the incumbents tend to do badly in the first debate because they are used to people kissing up to them for four years and they don't usually do the hard work of the actual prep maybe because they think they've got this already they know what they're doing but whatever it is the incumbents have tended to do poorly in fact uh there have been seven debates with an incumbent dating back to 1976 and in six of those cycles the incumbent either lost one debate decisively or lost the entire debate cycle. So this is one of those cases where Reagan loses the first debate decisively and people are saying that he, he's not up to snuff and they kind of have to go back. It's kind of like um, Rocky after losing an early fight has to go back and retool and find the original way, way to fight. And so Reagan is having these debate prep sessions in the executive office building uh, with David Stockman, who was a, a 33-year-old congressman, becomes OMB director, and he is just pounding reagan i mean, just humiliating reagan just beating the tar out of him uh and reagan gets so mad at one point he tells him to shut up (laughs) (laughs) and and, uh stockman just says i'm just doing what baker told me to do which may or may not have been true (laughs) but there's also a sense among the reagan aides that stockman enjoyed taking reagan to to the woodshed on on this stuff um and then roger Ailes comes in this is uh pre-fox news he's kind of he's a famous political consultant and uh uh, very skilled at help uh, Nixon win in 1968, taught Nixon the use of television, and so Roger Ailes comes and watches this horror show, and he says, "This is not working. Uh, you, you know, you guys are going to lose it if you keep doing this." And he says, "Let me just have some time alone with Reagan," and he kind of takes Reagan away from the debate book, which Reagan wasn't really cracking anyway. And he says, "You know, you win on themes, on broad themes. So let's just play a game of pepper. I'll shoot a question your way, and you answer in your natural mode." And so. That kind of relaxed Reagan and he was doing better. And then Ailes brings up this issue of, well, you're going to have to deal with the age problem. And Reagan kind of gets a twinkle in his eye and says, I think I've got an idea for how to handle that. And then later, obviously, the line that you mentioned earlier mm-hmm. about my opponent's youth and, and experience uh, comes up. And Mondale said that when that line happened, he he was completely deflated because he knew the election
1: was over. <laughs> he, he knew he wasn't going to win after that moment. Um. And it's funny, when you go back and actually watch, and maybe we can roll in the audio of it in here, but...
2: Mr. President, I want to raise an issue that I think has been lurking out there for two or three weeks and cast it specifically in national security terms. You already are the oldest president in history, and some of your staff say you were tired after your most recent encounter with Mr. Mr., uh, Mondale. Um, I recall yet that President Kennedy had to go for days on end with very little sleep
0: during the Cuba missile crisis. Is there any doubt in your mind that you would be able to function in such circumstances? Not at all, Mr. Truitt, and I, and I want you to know that also, I will not make age an issue of this campaign. I am not going to exploit, for political purposes, my opponent's youth and inexperience. When you go
1: back and watch it, I, you know, Reagan, could really nail a line. I don't think he nailed it. I mean, there's a, there's a stutter in it. There's like a pause as he's like trying to remember it. I just don't think it was a great, I think it was a great line. I don't think it was delivered as well as you would think given the lore about it. Um, But I also think it's sort of like uh, um, my friend Rob Long, you know, he talks about this, that we are now so, used to faster paced television and editing and all that kind of thing that when you just go back and watch old stuff, it just seems slow and more deliberate. So maybe there's some of that going on there too.
2: It's, it's totally true. I try to show my son Miami vice. Cause I remembered what a cutting edge show it was and how action packed it was. And he was bored out of his mind. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, the stuff in the eighties is just not like, uh,
1: like TV. Is today. Um, okay. So Reagan wins that in a landslide, uh, Wins everything except Minnesota and D.C., right? Minnesota being Correct. Walter Mondale's uh, home state. Okay. And D.C. being a hive of scum and villainy. Um, <laughs> and uh, and then we have 88, where uh, longtime listeners know I've told this story a bunch of times, but um, uh, I told this joke a bunch of times. Robin Williams had that great line about how he wanted to make sex an Olympic sport just to see what the East Germans came up with. Um, I always thought that Michael Dukakis was as if he was designed by a bunch of East German scientists to come up with the worst possible candidate, particularly at the time. Um, so much so that George Bush could actually beat somebody in a, in a debate, but let's, let's talk about that for a second.
2: Yeah. So, so that's a really good point in terms of, uh, the East Germans and design because Dukakis really had an all-star team of debate prepsters. I mean, he had um, Robert Squire and Susan Estrich and Ted Sorensen, Tom Donilon, who later became National Security Advisor for Obama, uh, Bill Bradley, Mario Cuomo, Bill Clinton made appearances in the debate prep, and they were all giving him advice. And it's really interesting that Dukakis's briefing book had a very tough anti-crime answer, because, you know, Dukakis was having trouble on the crime issue because of Willie Horton, and it said it was one of the mandatory points that Dukakis had to make. You must make this answer. So he was told you had to deal with the crime issue. And it even had um, Dukakis supposed to talk about the mugging of his late father and the death of his brother in a hit and run. But when it came down to it, and Bernard Shaw asks that question about what happens if your wife is horrifically raped and murdered, he just gave the kind of dull technocratic answer. He didn't make any of the prepared rejoinders he was supposed to make on that specific answer on being anti-crime that he had prepared for. And it was that moment that really killed Dukakis and you say, oh, well, you know, it's amazing that George H.W. Bush was able to win a debate. It's not that he won the debate so much as Dukakis lost it and he yeah. lost it on a point that he should have been ready for and that he was supposedly ready for.
1: Yeah. I mean, it was just a, a colossal unforced error that fed perfectly into the, the, you know, as we were saying before, the the thematic criticism of the guy, that he was this bloodless, bureaucrat who read Swedish land reform books at the beach, which apparently was true. Um, um, but the, trying to remember, so that was also the year of the Zinger with with, with, right. with That's, quail, right? right. That's right. Which is probably famous. the more
2: me- memorable moment of those debates. Yeah. Um, and, and the interesting thing here is, again, this also comes out of debate prep because there was an Ohio congressman not really well remembered named Dennis Eckert. And Eckert played quail and he even gave some kind of silly quote to Time about how he's playing quail by wearing a golf sweater and putting a golf tee behind his ear and swinging a putter around so I'm making fun of uh, the, the lightweight reputation that quail had. And Eckert did what a debate prep person is supposed to do. He actually watched quail on the trail and he saw that quail would make this comparison to Kennedy, not saying I'm like Jack Kennedy, but he said that I'm the same age as Jack Kennedy, all you guys right. make fun of my age and the same age. And he tries it out on Lloyd Benson, who's Dukakis' vice presidential running mate. And Benson comes back with a line of, along the lines of, you're no more Jack Kennedy than George Bush is like Ronald Reagan. Which is not exactly the line he used, but once that came out, they sort of refined it and they come out with with the zinger. Mm And the other interesting thing here is that Quayle, I think, was poorly suited by his debate team, which included Bob Packwood, the, um, the former senator, and Packwood stupidly told Quayle that Benson was this courteous man who wouldn't be rough on a young senator and you know, don't, <laughs> don't expect any rough stuff from, from Benson. And boy, was he wrong. So uh, sometimes the debate prep folks uh, give you the right answer and you don't do it, like with Dukakis. And sometimes they give you bad guys and they mess you up.
1: Yeah, but I mean, part of the lesson of all that is that vice presidents don't matter, right? I mean, uh, the worst, if- perhaps the worst takedown
2: in. Vice presidential history, except maybe the 92, uh, 96 race um, with uh, Kemp versus Gora that we'll talk about in a minute. But uh, yeah, per- perhaps the worst moment in vice presidential
1: debate history, and his team still loses. Yeah. And, so and, and Benson's team loses. And you got to give, I mean, it seems to me that the, the lesson of that race, and this is an old thing of mine about how we don't historically elect sitting vice presidents to replace two term sitting presidents. Um, most vice presidents get the job of president either by waiting to run another one or two cycles later, or because their boss dies. Right. But, or is, you know, resigns in disgrace. Um, but I think, you know, since we fixed the constitution to have them both run on the same ticket, what 1800, something like that. Um, it's only George HW Bush and Martin Van Buren were elected straight to the presidency from the vice presidency. And I think we, that the natural patterns of American politics were against George H.W. Bush winning, except for the fact that Reagan was so popular, that Dukakis was so frickin' awful, um, and Bush was so unbelievably disciplined. That was the most disciplined, I mean, he, he can't have liked the Pledge of Allegiance Stuff that he did, and the card carrying member of the ACLU stuff that he did, or the tax so, pledge, <laughs> or the tax pledge, which we know he didn't like. Um, but all of that hokey stuff, which I think he later sort of semi apologized for. He was told, This is how you win eat your spinach, suck it up, and do it. And he did it. And you know, so much so that he was so disciplined on message message, you know, that stay the course four more years. that that was the theme of that Sat- those Saturday Night Live mocks, is just that you know, our skits was just that he didn't use all of his time in the debates because he's going to get his talking points out and then he stopped talking, which is sort of the anti, let's say, Donald Trump in, in some regards, which we'll get to in a little bit. But anyway, I just I, I think it's one of the more remarkable things of how unbelievably disciplined he was. Yeah, and, and I think discipline is
2: such an underappreciated uh, aspect of politics. The more disciplined candidate usually wins an election. It's uh, not always the case, but uh, it, it has a high degree of of being true, because uh, discipline is so important in terms of your message and your spending and how you control your team. And I remember um, Andy Card, when I worked in the George W. Bush White House, saying that George W. Bush is the most disciplined person I know. He's disciplined in how he runs his team. He's disciplined in his worship, uh, meaning we would read uh, from a prayer book every day. Um, He's disciplined in his exercise. Discipline really governs every aspect of his life, and, and I think it makes a difference.
1: All right, so 1992, we talked about that a little bit with the looking at the watch and and all of that. Um, What else should we know about the '92 debates?
2: Um, Well, I I think the um, there's the debate between Gore and Quayle, which uh, is worth watching again uh, or snippets of it because those guys, I mean, that was a slugfest. Those guys were going after each other. I I wouldn't say, I guess the media probably said that that Gore won, but I thought Quayle got his, his punches in. As well, uh, the other moment we talked about already was is the uh, indelible
1: watch moment, and uh, I think that really messed up. But uh, look, it, we also I, forget I don't think the, people... the, the Perot role, right? Which but, was part of the sort of reality showification of American politics to some degree. And
2: Admiral Stockdale, who am I? Why am I here?
1: Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Felt so but bad. But for I don't that think guy.
2: people talk about Bill Clinton that much in debates, in large part because he just outmatched his two uh, opponents, who were George H.W. Bush and um, and. And Dole in '96, so I mean, he just he just pretty much won those, yeah. those debates, and uh, people don't really talk about it because it wasn't that interesting. And in both cycles, '92 and '96, it's the vice presidential debate that's more interesting. And in '96, you have uh, Jack Kemp, who famously is underprepared for his debate with Al Gore, who was kind of um, demonic in his preparation for that debate, and. Um, uh, first of all, Gore is very disciplined in staying to the times for his answers because his team warned him that that Kemp wouldn't stick to the times. And then also, um, Kemp's de- debate prep team, to the extent he, he did prep and he didn't do as much as he should, kind of played Gore as this um, uh, this cliched liberal, which he really wasn't. And um, the, uh, the 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 Gore back then. Of
1: the, right. right? He he so, became more so the liberal. The but... of
2: Gore was a bit of a caricature, and it wasn't the actual Gore that uh that he ended up facing and i remember you know as conservatives we were were quite disappointed because we were excited that kemp who was one of the standard bearers of conservatism would actually go up there and and make the case for conservative ideas and and, and he either lost when he tried to make them or he ceded so much ground to gore that it was like he was accepting
1: the liberals position. that was a disappointment yeah 96 was just a bad year i mean (laughs) it just was i mean you kept looking for these opportunities to have your hopes built up and and you never found the pony amidst the manure. Um, okay. 2000. Um, the, uh, we mentioned it a little bit, the Gore sighing. Um, you weren't involved in any of that debate prep though. That, was, I, I was not involved in that debate. I, I yeah. was in, you know, four, but the great thing
2: about 2000 is there's, 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 there starts to be this perception of Al Gore as the uber debater. And there's this James Fowler's piece in The Atlantic talking about what a great debater Al Gore is and how he's had more experience in 88 and 92 and 96 and now uh, 2000. He's had so much experience on the debate trail. And he gets up there and he's just a, it seems like a crazy person in the first debate. He's sighing and he's mugging and he's just um, gesticulating and trying just show, being dismissive of George W. Bush in a rude way so much so that Saturday Night Live mocks him for it, and that's kind of the most famous part of that cycle. People remember the uh, the Al Al Gore um, mock in that that Saturday Night Live. And then he overcorrects, because his staff makes him watch the Saturday Night Live portrayal, and then he's kind of robotic in the second debate against Gore, And then he's got to go alpha male again in the third debate. Remember Naomi Wolf and the whole alpha male thing in in 2000. And he so much so that he stalks George W. Bush and gets into his face. And Rob Portman, who's now a senator from Ohio and did the debate prep, and he he played Gore, on the actual preps with George W. Bush, he stalked Bush and got in Bush's face. And Bush kind of interrupts the moment and kisses Portman on the head. And he says, Rob, (laughs) he's not going to do that. But uh, Gore... Um, but he'd been watching Gore, Portman had been watching Gore, and and Portman basically says, yeah, you watch it, he will. And he in fact did, and George W. Bush does this great head check. It's really worth watching on YouTube. Gore gets in his space, and <laughs> Bush kind of looks at him, acknowledges him, kind of head checks him, and then moves on, and uh, it kind of put Gore in his place. So Gore, the great uber debater, really did not do so well in three debates against George W. Bush, who was seen at the time as overmatched.
1: Yeah, I, mean, I remember that moment. I actually wrote this long sort of jokey what-if thing for National Review about what if they actually fought because it was there was this moment, you know, when he comes up on them, it's sort of like the high school freshman who thinks he's really tough who walks up and like the head linebacker of the football team and the head linebacker is just sort of like, what, what are you doing? What are you doing here? Like, it was like this really weird kind of like, hey, yeah, get out of my face kind of moment. And it was one of the, my favorite things about W back in that, you know, time was, because I was not a huge fan of the whole compassionate conservative thing, as you might recall. And, um, uh, but I really disliked Al Gore. And, uh, and I just thought that was a great sort of body language moment. It's funny because Gore was so much more articulate than than W. But it kind of is a perfect example of of how, Fluency of body language is actually sometimes more important than fluency of diction, you know, because Gore just came across so stiff and that whole overreacting, underreacting thing, that's what you get when you've got a very sophisticated Android and you're trying to calibrate the algorithm for lifelike behavior and you can't quite get it right and you turn the dial too far one way or too far the other way. Um... All right, so let's go to 2004, and then we got to kind of start speeding up the cycle a little bit. You, what was it like working on debate prep? Um, uh, who played John Kerry, and why didn't you? Uh, it, it was <laughs> Rob Portman played
2: John Kerry. Um, I, actually, I'm sorry, Rob Portman uh, played um, uh, John Edwards in, in the Cheney debate prep. Uh-huh. Uh, and I, I don't recall actually who played Kerry because one, one of the reasons is that Bush was not so into mock debates, and we saw that in the first debate. He didn't do sufficient prep for it. Cheney did something like 10 actual mock debates for his one debate against Edwards, and he really cleaned the floor with, with Edwards. Bush, I felt underprepared for his first debate with, with Kerry and didn't do great. He, I think, stepped it up and did better in, uh, in the next two debates and kind of held his ground sufficiently that uh, he, he was able to, to win the election, but, uh, but Kerry really uh, gave it to him. In that first debate um, and in terms of, of speeding it up in the subsequent cycles uh, the interesting thing about looking into the debate prep is we actually know less about the more recent cycles for two reasons number one is on the democratic side uh, ron Klein is this guy who does debate prep for every democrat pretty much for the last 20 years and he's very tight-lipped about it and he, he just really doesn't uh, like talking or he says he doesn't like talking about it you know, the first rule of debate prep is we don't talk about debate prep and so we just don't know much inside stuff right now. Maybe when his memoir comes out in X years, we'll, we'll know more. Um, but in general, the debate teams don't talk as much about this stuff in the immediate aftermath. And so you have to wait some time for the historical record to become come clearer. So I'm happy to talk about you know the, the gist of what happened in subsequent debates, but you, you just mm-hmm. don't have this kind of inside scoop that I've been giving because it's just yeah. not that, that information is not available to um. us.
1: And it's my rec, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, my recollection was that Bush, Bush, as you would suggest, lost the first one, won the second one, and kind of tied in the third. I mean, I'm, that's the way, but it's my memory, but I haven't, you know, I could be wrong about that.
2: Yeah, With I mean, Ke- you know, the, the, this whole question, this is also an interesting question It's worth talking about, is what's a win and what's a loss? Uh, it's not clear that there's, a, you know, a, a standard, a fair standard for judging. My my general rule of thumb is if the candidate's actually tied, the media will call it a win for the Democrat, mm-hmm. and if the uh, Democrat loses, they'll call it a tie. But Twitter has, I think, changed that a little bit because it used to be you'd wait 90 minutes for the grand pronouncement from George Stephanopoulos yeah. or someone like that who would say who won the debate. But now with Twitter, you know, in the Romney debate in 2012, people were saying, oh my gosh, Romney's winning this debate within 15 to 20 minutes, um, and it was clear that, that Obama uh, d- didn't seem to have it that night. and so when the grand pronouncers come out 90 minutes in, they had seen so much stuff on Twitter that Romney was winning that it was hard for them to say, oh, Obama held his own because he clearly didn't. And I was um, a a Romney surrogate in the debate spin room in -hmm. 2012. So, you know, you have those big placards that say Troy or Gillespie or whatever whatever the name of the, the spinners were. And we kind of streamed out as soon as the debate was over and we went into that, that spin room all kind of puffed up and ready to go. And the, uh, the Obama people didn't come out for a really long time, like an uncomfortably long time, because you got the sense they were trying to get their ducks in a row and figure out what to say after that debacle of a performance.
1: Yeah, um, yeah.
2: No, I remember that then, was bad. Yeah, but then, then the interesting thing is that uh, Karen Dunn, who was one of Obama's debate preppers, said to him, about romney you've got to go punch him in the face <laughs> meaning you've really got to go after him in the next two debates and i think romney stepped it back because he thought he had done so well in the first debate he didn't have to be as aggressive and i think that was a mistake and then obama was much more aggressive in yeah. debates two and three which one was the uh, 80s called they want their foreign policy back that was the third one and yeah. romney was intentionally trying to look presidential and not get in a knife fight with obama and i think that was a mistake mm-hmm. um but you know romney was right on the larger point that of russia was. is is you are know, he said number one geopolitical foe i mean now maybe china may be the number one geopolitical foe but uh both of them are geopolitical foes that we have to worry about and i think obama was overly dismissive in saying the 80s called they want their foreign policy
1: yeah and also that was which and which one was that the same one where candy crowley basically that was number the, two the the spot fact check about the benghazi thing and got it right wrong right and but also it
2: seemed i've never gotten the the final uh, d- definitive thing on this but it seemed like. She was kind of in cahoots with uh, with Obama because Obama seemed to say, Candy, can I get that fact check? Like he knew she had it there. Yeah. And that seemed like a weird moment.
1: Yeah, yeah. All right, so um, looking forward, right? We've already heard that Trump does not want to do PrEP, right? And um, we've already heard that, um, you know, the Trump campaign has got the self, they're playing catch up now where they... Been saying for so long that uh, Biden is this drooling, m- un- mentally unfit mongoloid who can't, doesn't even know where he is or whether he's alive. And now all of a sudden they're like, holy crap, that's a mistake because we're lowering expectations. So now they're saying, well, he's been this great debater for 40 years, which there's a contradiction there. Um, uh, where do you see, If uh, let's put it this way going just from historical precedent, you'd expect Trump to have a bad night, right? With all other things being equal. First yeah, first... given
2: that the the incumbents, as I said, seven incumbents up there, and six of them probably lost their first debates, um, Bill Clinton being the, the exception. So uh, it's usually not a good night for the incumbent because they're so used to people kissing up to them. Uh, the second thing is, it's true, Biden has 40 years of experience with the these debates, but we've seen different Bidens over the years. Yeah, I mean, that, yeah. that guy has morphed and evolved over time. Um, in 2012, Biden, I thought uh, he really got a, a victory against Paul Ryan. I thought that he was acting kind of like Gore did in 2000 with the mugging and the uh, gesticulating and, and kind of get, trying to get under Ryan's skin. And I thought that the media would call Biden out on it like they did Gore in 2000, but I think maybe it says something about the, how the media had, had changed over those 12 years that they all said, "Yeah, Uncle Joe really gave it to him," and they were very happy with uh, Biden's
1: performance, and, and it was seen as a, as a win for Biden. Yeah, so I mean, I don't the know media if wanted Obama out. to win so badly, you know. I mean, I think that's a huge part of that.
2: Right, but they did call Gore out in 2000. You know, I'd say they were generally yeah. pro Gore in 2000, but it seemed like in 2012, Biden did the same exact things, but he didn't get called out on it.
1: Yeah, but the difference is there. I would also argue is that getting back to my point about body language being important, Biden's mugging and gesticulating and stuff seems like it's coming from a fairly normal bipedal carbon-based life form while Gore's doesn't. And so it, it I think it just communicates differently, but I mean, I, I could that's be, a,
2: that's a great point. One's organic. The other seems constructed in a lab.
1: That's right. I mean, you know, the synths always mess this stuff up, you know, and, and, and I'm only being, I was going to say half facetious, but it's really only 10% facetious. Um, you know, we were talking about Ailes earlier. Ailes was famous for this, where when he was a consultant for television networks, television stations, he would fly into some local market the night before, he would turn on the local news, and he would keep it on mute and just watch the body language. And then come in the next day and say, okay, here are the people you need to fire. Here are the people who are good and all that kind of stuff. And it didn't matter what was actually coming out of their mouths. And, uh, Ailes did that at Fox for, you know, he kept the TVs on all day on mute, but it hit part of his test about who was good and who was bad was who made you want to turn up the volume to see what they were saying. And I think that sort of is a similar insight about politicians is that if you can carry yourself in a way that makes you seem alpha ish, uh, it's more compelling, and I, I, I honestly think that might be an advantage for Trump in these things, but we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, it's one of the more
2: unpredictable debates, I will say. And, uh, you know, I, I like the me- I know the media and the pundits like say, "Oh, this is unpredictable. We don't know what's going to happen." Usually, you kind of do, right? Yeah. You kind of know who, who's got what. But in this, I'm, we've seen varied performance, hugely varied performance from Biden this entire cycle. Sometimes he seems like he can't get a sentence out, and then sometimes he seems uh, quite articulate. Uh, the old Biden was known for having a diarrhea of the mouth and would never stop and wouldn't stick to his his time limits. The recent Biden has been saying less than usual and less than his allotted time, and it, it seems to me that that's a conscious strategy to a to get him more disciplined, but b maybe if you say less, you're less likely to make a mistake. And and then Trump is you know all performance, and, and he also is varied depending on, on the night. So. Um,
1: Uh, I don't know what we're going to see, but it's going to be interesting. Yeah, I mean, I just, I I do pity the poor fact checkers because Biden gets numbers wrong and and history wrong. I mean, this is the guy, you know, who talked about how how FDR went out on national television after the stock market crashed to reassure the country. And Hmm. he wasn't president when the stock market crashed and there wasn't television. television. (laughs) But other than that, he really nailed the anecdote. and uh and we all know that trump trump's relationship to facts is, is is not not ideal
2: right but i think the fact checkers you know when they say you know, ten thousand lies or whatever there's you know, so many of them are differences of opinion some of them are actual lies but the the mixing of the differences in opinion and the actual lies i, I think diminishes the value of the point of saying oh
1: this this fact check is not true no i, I think that's right i mean and, and um i know that you are not as strident and all this stuff as I am about uh, Trump. But I do think the bald-faced deceits and lies and making stuff up that come from Trump are qualitatively different than previous president presidents, which is not to say the previous previous presidents didn't lie. Um, but the 10,000 number I'm sure is inflated and it's probably only like 3,800 or something like that. But the quality of the lies and some of these things is really staggering.
2: Um, I just think the fact checkers make more than there actually are. And
1: I think that weakens their position. I agree with that. I agree with that. I think that's, you know, and I I, I mean, this is, you know, we do fact checking at the dispatch and we try not to lose our heads about it and all that. Um, But as a general proposition, you know, this has been my complaint about quote unquote explanatory journalism for a long time and fact checking. It's like, isn't that what just journalism is supposed to be? Explaining stuff and checking facts? I mean, like, why do we have to have this carve-out for... It's like saying, you know, you know, that cooks... We have we have the cooks, and then we have the people who do the potatoes. I mean, it's like, it's just all part of cooking. You know, it's all part of journalism is explaining explaining things and, and checking facts. But anyway. Um, we didn't talk about Trump versus Hillary, um, but because I think it's probably still fresh in a lot of people's minds And, you know, it's probably why some people are sitting naked in a shower, hugging their knees. Um, but what, um, what do you think Biden can learn from Hillary's mistakes? Or what do you think Trump can learn from those debates? I mean, what, who's he going to bring in? He can't exactly bring in uh, Bill Clinton's victims the way he could with Hillary, right? So what would you expect?
2: Yeah, but, but that's a really interesting point you're making, Jonah, because that's the most memorable moment of the 2016 debate, not what anything that happened on the stage, yeah. but his kind of pre-staging event. So um, you know, I, I would say expect some kind of thing, some kind of shenanigans from him before the debate, as opposed to uh, focusing on, on what happens on stage. And, and look, I, I think Biden should just, the extent he can be kind of sober, focused, say the facts, and uh, and and not try and get in a, in, in a knife fight with a guy, because if you do that, then both of you get diminished, and um, you know, Trump has an ability to get away with things that other people seem not to be able to get away with, mean um, look at Rubio, when he tried to uh, compare sizes with Trump, it just, it did not work yeah. for Rubio, and it didn't seem to hurt Trump.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's right, I mean, I think that's, one of the things that explains vast swaths of our politics these days is that Trump's aberrant behavior is priced in, and it isn't for anybody else. So if you behave weird, you get judged for it in ways that um, Trump doesn't get judged for it, and I, I, you know, it's just a fact of the political landscape. What do you think about? You know, there are two minds out there. Some of my friends uh, argue that Trump one of the reasons why Trump won in 2016, and I think there's some truth to this, just out hustled Hillary Clinton, did more events, campaigned more, uh, you know, was more available to TV, more omnipresent and all that kind of stuff. Um, and that's playing out again, is that Trump is just in the news vastly more than Joe Biden. He's doing more events. Most of Biden's stuff is closed to the public. There's a lid almost every single day. He's in effect running a front porch campaign. Um, the theory behind it being, if you talk to Biden people, that Trump's his own worst enemy. And as long as he's out there stepping on his own message and creating controversies that people are exhausted with, that's good for Biden because he's running as the not Trump candidate. What? Where do you come down on on these things?
2: I think the Trump operation caught Hillary off guard, especially in three key states. And uh, they assumed because they had won, they get back to our earlier conversation, but the Democrats had won. Those states, specifically Michigan, Pennsylvania, um, and not Ohio but uh, Wisconsin, um, b- because they've won those three states in the last few cycles, that they assume that they were in the bag. And I don't think the Biden team is going to make that assumption this time. Uh, but but I, I just think Hillary was was caught off guard by by Trump's sort of omnipresence in front of the electorate. Um, I, I understand that Biden is doing fewer events, but I, I think that they will have more focus on some of the states that uh, that that they thought they had in the bag. So I, I think that might be mitigated to, to some degree. But look, if, if you want to have a debate or a conversation on which candidate looks
1: more tired, uh, yeah, Biden looks more tired. There, there's yeah. no,
2: no doubt of that, but I don't know if that wins the day.
1: Um, and do you have a gut feeling on, I mean, I know there's a lot of political science out there on this, but do you have a gut feeling on whether or not the traditional... GOTV stuff matters anymore, particularly during COVID. You know, there's this debate among the Biden camp about whether they're going to do door knocking or whether they should do door knocking. Uh, Trump team is doing door knocking. Now, apparently the Biden team's catching up with door knocking. And then there's the perennial debates about signs, you know, yard signs and all of that. Um, Do you think that 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 stuff, particularly in the during a pandemic still matters? Yeah, this is the kind of stuff
2: you don't know, and you don't know until after the election. So um, we didn't know that Obama was uh, brilliant in use of Facebook until after the election in 08, and that Bush was great in micro targeting until after. Um, you know, people talked about it. Oh, Bush is doing this, but you didn't know that it would win the day. So we'll see. I think it's a. It's a. <laughs> I think a lot of young people will be very happy if door knocking is proven to be ineffective because the whole idea of going to an unfamiliar neighborhood and knocking on that scary house with the barking dog is, yeah. um, you know, is something that uh, has scared a lot of young people in, in politics for many years. So, um, maybe that will be a thing of
1: the past. Yeah. But that, that builds character. Yeah. Um, all right. So, uh, we need to start wrapping up, but, uh, what are you going to look for in, like, if you were going to make a bingo card for things to look for in the, in the, at least the first debate, what would you be looking for? I'm going to look to see if uh, Biden can stay within his time limits, which uh, I think he will. I think
2: if Biden has kind of blank moments, does he kind of lose focus? Um, And and just how, um, what his eyes look like? Does he look like he's there? I mean, he seemed there the night of the DNC. He seemed there the night of the uh, Bernie Sanders debate. Um, Now, the Bernie Sanders debate, I thought he did well that night. But on the other hand, Bernie Sanders was kind of playing with kid gloves. Um, How rough is Trump going to be? Is Trump going to try and do disruptive things to get under his skin? And, um, and, and does Trump want to be there, right? Often the sense of incumbent presidents is that they don't want to be there. They're beneath it uh, or it's beneath them. And, um, I think you'll tell, you could be able to ter- tell early on how unhappy Trump is to be on that stage
1: or whether he's relishing relishing. Yeah. I mean, I do, I do think there's a real danger for Trump. Remember the Al Gore thing we were talking about earlier, where he got up in W's grill, um, on the one hand, knocking Biden off of his game and making him seem like a out-of-touch old man, you know, having make, forcing him to have a Stocktail moment would be great for the Trump campaign, and I guarantee you there are people in the White House who are pushing him for that. On the other hand, if you go for that and it fails, that's a really bad look. It makes you look like a bully and a jerk, even more so than normal. Um, and i could see that going either way and i could see it, i i could see the attempt paying off and working for trump or i could see it failing horribly and then trump's whenever he screws stuff up spends the next 3 days making you know saying i meant to do that and making it worse
2: yeah so it, it's definitely a high risk approach so uh, but th- i think it helps trump that he's similar age to biden right if you have a 40 year old trying to disrupt an old man that can look bad and and actually uh, it reminds you a little bit of the Mondale-Reagan moment. Mondale was, I guess, f- 56 at the time. But, yeah. you know, he, he wanted to make the point about the old man thing and, and that Reagan was older, but you couldn't overdo it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Oh, I guess we should just say, uh, and what do you expect from the uh, the vice presidential debates?
2: <laughs> um, look, I, I think uh, Pence did a good, do- good job in the last debate. Um, obviously, there's this thought that uh, Harris is... Uh, you know, for a former prosecutor, and she's very good. Uh, yeah, I, I didn't. I didn't think she wore well in the uh, in the campaign, and uh, which is why one of the reasons she she left pretty quickly. Uh, but I'm sure that that debate will be more substantive and have less shenanigans
1: than, mm-hmm. than the Trump one. Yeah, I, I think Harris was a bad pick for basically those reasons. I don't think that she's going to turn out a lot of the black vote. Um, if she was really that popular with black voters, she would have done better in the primaries. But they all voted for the old white guy anyway. Um, and, uh, um, but I also think that Pence could say something really. He could have a, a half dozen binders full of women moments, in, in in the media's interpretation, which is to say, he could say stuff that really doesn't deserve scorn, but will be interpreted as deserving of scorn, which could could hurt. But anyway, um, all right. Uh, I shouldn't have the last words. So is there anything else that you uh, you know, that you intended to get in here?
2: Just two points. One is I'm glad we've maintained equivalents and I think people should go out and buy Fight House.
1: I think both of those things are true. All right, Tevi Troy, thanks so much for being here. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, so Tevi, uh, Tevi's gone and but he'll always be in our hearts and uh, it was fun talking to him um, and I thought we would just do this debate thing so we're, we, we've jumbled around our schedule a little bit to get this out there. And um, I hope people liked it. I hope people found it useful. And um, that's really all I got to say. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Oh, remember, right after, right after the debate on Tuesday night, we're going to do a emergency video podcast thing call whatchamacallit um, with our thoughts and responses to how it went. Um, and uh, you can get details about all that uh, by going to the, the dispatch.com and, um, I hope we'll see you there and then we'll have more sober, literally and figuratively, uh, thoughts and responses to how the debate went the next day on the flagship dispatch podcast. I, oh, we, I still need to remind you guys that we have the, the 30 day trial offer is still up and running and you get to have access to everything that is available to full members of the dispatch community. You get the you get the full morning dispatch and all its splendor and glory. You get um, the midweek G file. You get all of David French's stuff, Tom Jocelyn, Scott Lincecum, everything and anything. It's a smorgasbord, including the dispatch live stuff. So if you just go to the dispatch.com slash 30 days free, you'll can see the offer and um, you can sign up and, you know, no secret here. We're hoping that you like what you see so much and you believe in what we're doing so much that at the end of your 30-day trial, you decide to become um, a full-fledged paid member of the dispatch community. So please give it a whirl. And if you don't like it, don't. You can stay on with the free list stuff. That's fine too. It's just not as good. So uh, please give it a try. So with that, uh, thanks for tuning in and I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast.